The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, I'm really pleased to be here tonight. It's been a while since I've been down here. Um, there was a time when I was getting down here oh, two or three times a week, so if you think of driving from Davis as a big deal. Um, let me tell you, driving home Friday afternoon, not good. Not good. Um, I wanted to talk tonight about um, how we might understand uh, the Buddha's awakening in terms of our 21st century sensibilities. Um, how can we, how can we bring a 25-year-old, 2,500-year-old um, Dharma? How how does it make sense in terms of uh, our world, which is conditioned by scientism and empirical, our our interest in personal empirical testing? Um, you know, I mean, the Buddha, if he gave it much thought at all, probably thought that the uh, sun went around the earth. You know, certainly had no idea of galaxies and black holes. Um, and didn't particularly have a, uh, a background in, in science, although he was incredibly well-educated for his time. Um, and a lot, of the, a lot of the cosmology that gets brought along with the Dharma um, may, may not be easy for us to hold. There have been changes. I think it's, it's remarked often that when the Dharma moves to any culture, it takes on the qualities of the culture. So, you know, at the, at the most obvious level, the Bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara in India, when the Buddha Dharma moved to China, became a female entity, Avalokiteshvara being male. But in, in China, um, compassion was perceived as a feminine quality, and so the Bodhisattva was recast. So we might be in a similar kind of a situation because, you know, the, the, uh, the time of the Buddha, there were, you know, there were devas, around in the world and people with superpowers and mind reading and you know lots of lots of magic that we now sort of don't see so much of anymore right yeah um so how might we be able to understand this one of the big one of the big um issues has to do with um, oh, and 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 we we also here in in the West we we get a lot of our dharma from a collection of dharma teachers, not all of whom seem to be saying the same thing. You know, there's and there's sort of a, and there's a muddiness that gets that can develop, and uh, so I'd like to sort of ad address that a little bit in terms of the the scientism that uh, is out there in the, in the culture for, for all of us. Uh, just to see if it's possible to uh, construe the Dharma in a way that uh, isn't internally inconsistent. Um, one of the biggest, the biggest issues is the issue of transcendence or not. Is, is there some kind of experience that is beyond our sensory abilities, sensory reach. And, and for the Buddha, the, that included uh, the capabilities of the mind. Um, are there worlds other than those that are available to our experience? You know, this is not an uncommon notion. Um, and and you, you can speculate on why all you want, but it seems it seems to be you know, in, in Western in Western philosophy, Aristotle had the unmoved mover, and then we've got the invisible God that creates the visible world. Uh, we've got heaven and earth. Oh, we've got multiple lives. I mean, I actually personally am not sure whether multiple lives is different in some ways than 
heaven and hell, you know, um, to the extent that we have no empirical uh, ability to verify, or the multiple heavens that show up in a lot of uh, a lot of the the Dharma teachings in the suttas, uh, the various levels of 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 heaven and 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 hell. Um, And a lot of this, a lot of this, creeps into the Buddha Dharma. Although the Buddha was never one to talk about the oneness of all things, it sort of creeps in because at the time and even even today, there's uh, a very powerful metaphor uh, in Advaita Vedanta: the oneness of all things, the unity of all things. We are all part of the one. We hear that sometimes even in Dharma circles. And the notion for the Brahmins was that the spirit of Brahma, Brahma that pervades the entire, uh, the entire cosmos, each of us is a part of it. We've all heard the metaphors about the wave and the ocean. We're all just like waves on the ocean. The ocean is when we come from and we go to, you know the metaphor? Um, that's not particularly Buddha Dharma. In fact, it's not Buddha Dharma. Um, but it, it sort of creeps in. Um, and the, and the, the, in the, at the Buddhist time, this was the context that he was, that he was teaching in. Um, for the Brahmins, all this transitory stuff was delusion, maya. And Brahma was the thing we were to, to learn, to recognize our identity with the one. Um, this was not what the Buddha had in mind at all. Um, in some, some teachers will teach, and the tradition teaches that in some, in some uh, strains of the traditions taught that Nibbana is somehow transcendent or otherworldly, something inaccessible to our senses, unconditioned, something permanent, whereas the Buddha taught everything was impermanent. And the idea that something exists that's permanent is confusing. How many times have you heard the question asked if there is no self, who gets reincarnated, who gets reborn? You know, it's sort of a question that comes up a lot because people just, you know, because of the inconsistency. Um, and this difference between the transcendent something, whatever, and the experience that we have, the empirical experience we have, is in, in a lot of religions and spiritual traditions. Here's St. Teresa of Avila. She says, Let nothing disturb thee. Let nothing affright thee. All passeth away. So far, so good. God only shall stay, who hath God needeth nothing. So we get the transcendent something, permanent something. There is this sense in Western uh, culture that what's real has got to be permanent. That comes from, from Plato, I think, you know, the world of forms where things were permanent. We sort of have that... It, somehow we've got a sense that in order for it to be real, it's got to be permanent, and yet all of our sensory experience is, to say the least, impermanent, transitory, fleeting. How should we think of this fleeting world? One of the, one of the things that, one of the, the fault line here in different, there are different strains of the Buddha Dharma that contain these notions too, and there's a fault line here which falls on, I think is most clearly visible on the issue of karma. Um, and, and the notion of multiple lifetimes. Because, because it almost seems as if from the point of view of the of the Theravadan tradition, the multiple lifetimes have to sort of be built into the notion of, of karma. Let me just read you. This is 
Bhikkhu Bodhi writing about um, or speaking about about karma, he said the foundational level, he's talking about right view, is the right view of karma and its fruits. Foundationally, you have to understand karma and its fruits. And to properly understand the working of karma and its fruits, one has to consider them in connection with the capacity of our actions to bring forth their results through a sequence of many lives. That is, the right view of karma and the fruit means an understanding, at least in principle, of how karma generates rebirth linking. Therefore, the right view of karma and rebirth as uh, of karma as a force that guarantees repeated existence in the round of birth and death is the fundamental background right view against which the second type of right view derives its full meaning. So he's saying, he's talking about multiple lives. This is certainly out there, the breakdown in the, in the suttas, that you know, there's discussion of the breakdown of the body when gets reborn in one of the different dharma realms, the heaven realms, the hell realms, the hungry ghost realms. Karma is an interesting, is an interesting word. The word itself uh, in Sanskrit um, came, evolved from the word karman, which the Brahmins used to describe the correct performance of Brahmanic ritual. Karman was the, you, you know, most of the society at the time of the Buddha was it was very highly ritualized. You hardly did anything that wasn't in accord with ritual. And if you, um, if you wanted your cow to have a, a calf, or you wanted a son, or you wanted good weather, or whatever, the Brahmins would for a fee, I guess, um, perform the, the correct rituals to keep the gods happy and, and, and enable you to benefit. You were going to get a payback from the world. This, you know, this was looking outward, outside, for uh, payback to make ourselves, for, ha- for our happiness. Our happiness would come from outside. And, of course, good karma was when the rain came, and if you've been asking for rain, good karma. And I think that in some ways, this is this notion that if, you, that if your action is correct, the feedback comes back correct, that's the popular notion of karma. What goes around comes around. is sort of, you know, you hear that sometimes as, as a notion of, of uh, karma. And it has to do with, with uh, and, and there, it has to do with, with the way the universe responds to you. I've heard people talk about having good parking karma. You know, it's, 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 it's nice to think you've got good parking karma. Um, my wife has a disabled placard. That's good parking. Oh. <laughs> um, best state in town. <laughs> but it has, but it really has to do with, you know, what comes back. And I've heard um, senior teachers say things to the effect of, if you were standing on the, not to the effect of, but to say that if you were standing on the beach in Sri Lanka when the tsunami hit, that was your karma. There was, my my wife, as some of you may know, um, has a chronic illness and has written a book called How to Be Sick. And she gets a lot of email from people uh, about one thing or other in the book. And one of the things, one of the comments that she gets frequently is people writing and saying, what did I do wrong in my past life? You know, that that wound me up here being being you know, with fibromyalgia or rheumatoid arthritis or what, whatever is going on, lupus. And some people find it comforting. You know, once she responded to somebody that, uh, well, she, she really didn't believe in that stuff and uh, 
you know, if you have a body, bodies get sick, things happen to them. Um, you know, it doesn't have to do with something uh, necessarily in a pattern. And the guy wrote back and was very upset because he thought that this was, this was comforting. There was a reason for this. Not saying it's right or wrong, just noti- noting, noting how this works. But I think the, the Buddha had a slightly different notion. And it, it, it highlights something that, that um, is a way to, for me, it's, it's been very helpful, and this is actually a personal account, I guess, um, to see my way through the, the, the metaphysics that comes with the Dharma, just directly, directly to it. The Buddha said, uh, karma is intention. No, action. But action includes the intention, the internal intention, the intention to act. And intention was all important because he also said that what a, what a person, what a monk, he says, but I guess it applies to the rest of us too, what a person routine, routinely uh, thinks about and spends his time attending to becomes the inclination of his mind. What a person regularly contemplates or does, his mind becomes the inclination. Um, I made my my livelihood when I was before I retired in in uh, politics, and so I had, you know, my job was about what was in the newspapers, and I over years developed a news habit that is to this day hard to hard to break it's just i feel uneasy not knowing way more than i need to know about things that are not necessary to pay attention to <laughs> but i just you know i i um and it's just a, it's just a habit the inclination of my mind i i was um i i uh play the viola and meet with a uh, uh, someone as a teacher who's uh, was brought up in the in the in Russia in the Ukraine and in the Soviet school and um, we were talking this morning about listening to a piece of music and I I said well you know what sometimes I just I just get lost in the music and he said boy I wish I could do that but all he does now when he hears music it's all technical you know, he, he's, how are they doing? How did they do that? What was the effect? How did they create that effect? Was the bow to this, the fingers to, you know, all analytical. The habit of his mind becomes the shape of your life. So karma becomes what you become, what you turn yourself into, not what happens to you. And I find that I can read most of the Buddha's descriptions of, you know, the fruits of karma, how how what you do uh, um, sets you up for what comes next. In terms of this, in terms of this vision, it's not out of out of accord with with the Dharma as he taught it. And you know, on on the one hand, you can have vi- a vision of karma which doesn't include multiple lifetimes. Now we like to have, we like to feel that there's justice in the world. We like to think things are fair, right? I mean, we tell our kids, anybody who's had kids has had to tell your kids, life is not fair, but we just don't believe it. But we have to tell them that. We think it should be, don't we? We think it should be. I actually think, <clears throat> that it might be somehow uh, part of our, our, our evolutionary inheritance as social animals to have some sense of equity in, in, the, in the tribe to help us survive. Maybe. Maybe not. But, but it's not necessary. I mean, it's possible. Let's, let's put it that way. It's possible to understand karma without you know, past and uncountably future lives, 
just in terms of what you can experience um, yourself and to notice how your own behavior sets you up, sets your, your patterns, creates your habits, and shapes your life. Which is why when you practice mindfulness, one moment of mindfulness sets you up better for the next than a moment of forgetfulness. Um, we still do like you know to have fairness. So I, I think of Ken Lay, who was the head of Enron, who just before he was indicted, I mean it was clear this was it was you know just before he was indicted he died. You know, so did he get off the hook? You know, we want to think, well, <laughs> he has to pay somehow. You know, so, you know, you can set up the heaven or hell or multiple lives and he'll come back as a cockroach in a South American cave or something. And I mean, or you can just abandon that notion, uh, not, not cling to it, not, not suffer behind it. Um, but there's, but this is a karma that is that doesn't, you know, it's not the outer karma. You're not asking the world for payback. You're not looking outside yourself. You're looking in yourself because, really, what you live with is your intention. You know, when the Buddha went to visit the Kalamas, most many of you have have heard of the, the Kalama Suttas. The Buddha was, uh, you know, he showed up in town and with all of his monks, I guess, and, and uh, the Kalamas, they were, they were apparently, they had a reputation for being rather skeptical. And they said, well, you know, there was a guy here last week, some, went, the story went something like this, a guy here last week, he said, what he says is true and everything else is false. And, you know, next week we got the same space booked and uh, you know, we know what this guy's going to say because we've heard him before. And he says what he says is true and what everybody else says is wrong. Why should we pay any attention to you? And the Buddha said, well, actually, maybe what I should do is, is to, uh, to read it. I thought maybe I could get away without reading it. But he has a nice list of things that you, that, uh, he says, it's fitting for you to be perplexed, O Kalamas. It's fitting for you to be in doubt. Doubt has arisen about a perplexing matter. Come, Kalamas, do not go by oral tradition, by lineage of teaching, by hearsay, by a collection of scriptures, by logical reasoning, by inferential reasoning, by reflection on reason, by the acceptance of a view after pondering it, by the seeming competence of a speaker, or because you think the ascetic is our teacher. What did he leave out? So you're not supposed to go by oral tradition, lineage of teaching, hearsay, you know, a collection of scriptures, logical reasoning, inferential reasoning, reflection on reasons by acceptance of a view after pondering it. He says, but when you know for yourselves such things, particular things, such actions uh, are unwholesome, unskillful, such things are blamable. Such things are censured by the wise. Such things, if undertaken and practiced, will lead to harm and suffering. Then you should abandon them. So he's talking about learning to recognize your own intention and to recognize whether, what you're, whether the intention behind a particular action is for the benefit of yourself and, and or others or for the detriment. Now, when the Buddha was... was Early in his, um, in his, he describes uh, in his seeking towards towards his enlightenment. He describes um, how he would walk in the in the jungles, um, and this these jungles are not like Tilden Park or someplace. You know, these are 
when they hear the rustling and the, it could be something that could eat you. <laughs> you know? But he said he would walk in the jungles and he would uh, freeze until the fear would go away. Amazing discipline. And he also said he recognized that some of his intentions were f intended for the benefit of himself and others and some were not. And he resolved to abandon those that were not to abandon those intentions that were not for the benefit of himself and or others. Incredible, incredible ability. Because um, we've all been in that place where we know and we can't help ourselves. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not just me, right? So the Buddha is talking about knowing for yourself your own intention. He's not talking about you know the multiple lives, the mind reading, the supernatural powers. That, you know there are four supernatural powers that are described in the suttas, and sometimes those are distracting. People think it's important. But really, the Buddha said he teaches, he teaches just one thing. And that's, well, I can't tell whether it's one thing or two things, but he says he teaches suffering and the end of suffering. And that's it. That's the heart of his teaching. So in the midst of this culture where the sun goes around the earth, you know, and there are devas in the, in the trees and... Uh, uh, you know, some people can appear in two places at once or read minds or, um, you know, there's stories about how the Buddha said, don't no flying around. Because no. you can't, because then lay people will, you know, they won't see the, almost the mundane nature of liberation. You know, it's very... It's very close to us. The Buddha brought into this into this mix. Um, he brought a few things a few things to the table that were that were distinct and different at the time. First thing was this notion of independence. Um, Stephen Batchelor talks about a few of these things, um, just individual independence and the the fact that you have to free yourself. You have to figure it out yourself. You can use teachers and clues um, and, and readings to help figure it out yourself. But really, you know, in the West, where in our spiritual tradition, the, you know, rests on the notion of original sin, it's permeated the whole culture. You don't have to be, um, you know, a devotee of... Um, the Judeo-Christian uh, Bible. I mean, if you've got an inner critic that's yammering away inside your head, you know, there's there's a taste of that. We uh, most of us have that going. It's just part of the culture. You know, I remember the, there's a story circulating about how early on the Dalai Lama was, you know, giving a talk in um, in in this country, and somebody asked a question about the inner critic. And the Dalai Lama said, oh, that's just a trivial mental state. Don't worry about it. And his interpreter leaned over and said, not here, it's not trivial. <laughs> In the East, the idea is that, but if you're, if you're originally polluted somehow and flawed, essentially flawed, then you need a savior. If you are originally pure and the defilements come and visit, as the metaphor goes in the East, then you're the one that's got to clean up your mess. So this independence is really important. Um, he formulated the notion of dukkha in terms of the Four Noble Truths, the four tasks that, that need to be accomplished for liberation. Uh, Suffering and dukkha was a, um, uh, and 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 the problem of desire was a problem of the time, the philosophy of the time. The Buddha put it together. It's it's basically one insight spread over four. 
I don't, I feel uncomfortable calling them truths because, but four truths. Now, the first is to, is a task to understand dukkha. And dukkha, of course, um, is, is referred to, is translated most frequently as suffering, but it's way more than suffering. It's every kind of uh, aversion, irritation, frustration, unease, boredom, anger, rage, loathing, rever- aversion. You know, it's the whole, the whole deal. If you fully understood it and the causes which gave rise to it, you probably stop doing it. I like to think we're slow, not really stupid, but slow, and that, you know, once we know that we're hurting ourselves, we, we stop. But often we, we, we don't get it for a while. But the first truth is to understand dukkha, and the second is to abandon the cause, abandon the origin, tanha, the kind of thirsting, the kind of, the kind of clinging that leads, that is the experience of dukkha, really, is the experience of that um, unsatisfiable thirst, you know, the need, the the lack, and the the realization, which is the third the third truth. Um, the third task is to, the third is the truth is to be realized. Neurota cessation is to be realized, and the fourth is to be the fourth truth which is the eightfold path is to be cultivated and i actually i think in a way it's 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 i mean you, we can think of it as a fake it till you make it kind of thing but really the, the the eightfold path is a single way of being it's a way of being without dukkha and it includes i mean this is, and this is the buddha's it's once again the eightfold path it's not so much a path it's a one, eightfold way of being and it's all one way of being it's like you can't separate the elements so for example you could say a basketball so this basketball is brown and it's got it's sort of rubber and it's got a little a lot of these little pimply things on them right and it's filled up with air under pressure it's about 16 inches across? I don't know. Weighs a couple pounds? Is that the eightfold basketball? You can't take one thing out. You can't say, well, I'll play with the brown. But the rubber stuff, I'm, I'm allergic. You know, you know. So it's a, it's, it's, um, so the Buddha brought this, this concept. This is one insight into the way of living without dukkha. Understanding it, abandoning the, the, the origins, the causes. Realizing the cessation by living according to the eightfold way of being. He also brought the notion of of emptiness, anatta, which is really a puzzlement. Um, really, it's it's very very it's it's almost the flip side of of impermanence, of anicca, of a radical impermanence, where there is nothing that lasts from the subatomic particles and the super colliders that, you know, for trillionths of a second, or whether it's the cosmos that we know that's, what, almost 14 billion years old, but God, we don't even know what's in the cosmos. 96% of it is invisible. It's dark matter, dark energy. We don't even know what it is, but what we know... 13 points. And in between, everything is in process. Everything is embedded. The body that, that you know, you find yourself in is not the same body when you were 10. You know, what is, the, what is there about, you know, you are, there is just process. I, Ajahn Amaro used to say, this is a, I've been a monk for 20 years, this is a 100% donated body. So, you know, in between, everything is embedded in everything else, and there are no things anywhere. There's just process. Things are nouns, and interestingly, most of the, you know, a whole bunch of the the Pali terms that we translate, nibbana is a verb, uh, has to do with extinguishing. Um, There's a lot more verb forms, 
Buckminster Fuller used to say, I seem to be a verb. There's just process. So there's no entity here, no Atman, as the Brahmins would, would say. The Buddha ethicized action. It was really important because at the time, there wasn't right or wrong. There, you, you performed in accordance with your dharma, your place in society. You know, the, the, uh, the story in the Bhagavad Gita where, where Arjuna is, you know, he's the warrior, so this is his caste and he's got to go fight and he looks across the valley and there are all his cousins and relatives and he goes, oh my gosh, I, I'm, I, I can't do this and he sits down and, and of course the charioteer turns, turns out to be the big guy himself who says, you have to do your dharma. You know, you can't kill anyone, everything is permanent. I mean, Brahman is permanent, You're, the soul is, you know, will go on, so nobody kills anything. You do your dharma and keep the cosmos in order. Um, the Buddha said, action, he, by, 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 by including right speech, right action, right livelihood in the Eightfold Path, and, and providing the precepts as guidance for ethical behavior. He ethicized action and made it an important part of the awakening process. And, you know, he offered a vision of Nibbana. Nibbana is, each of us has a different idea about it. It accords somehow with, with you know, however we understand it, accords with our, um, and our judgment of it accords with our conditioning and our, um, but the idea of the, of the final cessation of dukkha, if you understood it fully, um, one of my teachers says that, that the most important decision the Buddha ever made was to remain a monk because he could have been a King Solomon and then he would have been another wise political leader. But by remaining a monk, he, established, he demonstrated that you, you could abandon dukkha completely, where he abandoned all preference. As That's my understanding of the story. And of course, it makes me comfortable. <laughs> so, you know. I'm, I'm offering it to you <laughs> in case it makes you comfortable too. Um, but but the, but Nibbana, my understanding of of it is my understanding my idea of it is that it's the state where you fully it's what appears when you fully understand dukkha and and abandon it. It's like when you go off. Um, into space and you look back and see the earth, it's pretty hard after that to be persuaded that the earth is flat. <laughs> you know, you don't have to stay out there, you've seen it once. You know, once that insight. You don't you know, you don't have to go back into space. So so the idea is once once that's seen, once the heart of of uh, the, the the truths is seen, freedom is possible. It's different than the traditional, than the traditional understanding of awakening. I wrote down. This is these are my words. I wrote down trying to make sense of how the traditional understanding is. And you can tell me whether this is is how you you see it too. The idea is that over the course of many lifetimes, one who is dedicated to the practice of the Dharma can perfect the paramis by following the precepts. And on the basis of the good karma accumulated by this accomplishment, create conditions which enable a realization of nibbana, which is unconditioned, deathless, and not affected or conditioned by anything. And that's sort of that—that's sort of my understanding of the traditional story. That feel like you're in, is that the way it comes to you too? I mean, it's it's out there in that. In, in those pieces. Um, nibbana then would be uh, not anicca, not impermanent. Boy, did, 
to make contact with it would be not dukkha. And it, it would be essential. It would, it would be its own separate entity. Um, but it's not, but nibbana is not a, a, a noun. <laughs> nibbana is a thing. And the unconditioned, the Buddha was asked about the unconditioned. Um, you can find it in the Samyutta Nikaya. He said the unconditioned is what is unconditioned by greed, hatred, and delusion. So it had a, a specific, uh, a specific case. He says this is in the Samyutta Nikaya 43. Um, because I will teach you the unconditioned and the path leading to the unconditioned. And what bhikkhus is the unconditioned? The destruction of lust, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion, greed, hatred, and delusion. This is called the unconditioned. And what bhikkhus is the path leading to the unconditioned? Mindfulness directed to the body. And then also the other four, the other foundations. Um, so it's possible to interpret Nibbana in terms that don't require a metaphysics that has got multiple lives and multiple heaven realms and it's something that's actually um, possibly accessible here. Fully engaging our life without resistance to the unpleasant recognizing that if satisfaction is of importance to us, we will be dissatisfied. I mean, dissatisfaction is one of the translations of, uh, one of the translations of dukkha. It's kind of hard often to, to identify, but that's really what the task is. Learn to identify dukkha, learn to identify tanha, the cause, the craving, Learn to, to recognize it so that we can tr- change our relationship to it. But it's tricky because sometimes it's, it's you know, that is a, a Richard Farina novel from the 60s, been down so long, it looks like up to me, you know. It's like you're sitting, and you're, you're sitting at home and all of a sudden the refrigerator goes off, the compressor goes off, and you go, wow, I thought, you know, it's all of a sudden quiet, and you thought it was quiet, or the air conditioning goes off, and you, you know, it's sort of this low-level, ambient dissatisfaction, and it can, you can, that can exist, you know, the kind of longing, for example, for recognition, that can be something rooted in childhood, can, can, you know, be an ongoing pursuit, so that in all situations, you're looking for opportunities for to be noticed, to be praised, to be, you know, you're looking for opportunities. And you don't even notice. But one marker that, that might be helpful, I've found it helpful for me um, over the past months, I've been working with it now for about five or six months, is the notion of complaint. The world is the way it is. It is the way it is. What, our relationship to it is, is different. <laughs> you know, whether we like it or don't like it, or, you know, some, we, sometimes we don't even know what to make of it. I, my wife was sitting outside and looking out at the sunset one, one evening recently, and um, I was watching the news, and <laughs> I, really, um, and and I, I a story came on, and I got up and I went to the front door and looked at, it and I said, oh, you know, the Syrians are shooting civilians in the streets. And her first response was, "Why are you disturbing my sunset?" And then her second response was, "Why am I enjoying this sunset when?" People are dying in the streets of Syria. And then she thought, well, the sunset is beautiful and people are dying in the streets of Syria. 
when there's a complaint, it reflects your dissatisfaction. And so I like the, I'm, I notice a complaint as like, you know, those flags that the scuba divers put up when they go down, so that, you know, scuba divers below. So if you find a complaint, it's a great clue. There's dukkha below. You know, there's dissatisfaction there. The complaints may be justified or unjustified, but whether they're justified or unjustified has to do with other things. The dukkha of the situation is that a complaint is a marker. A lot of dukkha doesn't reach the level of complaint, but by the time that it is, and it can be a complaint about the traffic or the time or the your, why does my mother-in-law wear that crazy hat or you know, I mean, it could be anything, whatever, complaint, dissatisfaction. So our practice doesn't depend on what we believe at all. Belief structures, it doesn't matter. The, the trick is to learn how to recognize those impulses which give rise to dukkha, the craving that gives rise to dukkha. Learn to recognize it. <clears throat> if we can identify dukkha in our lives, if we can identify the complaints and start to figure out how to resolve them. I know Gil likes to tell a story about the, the, the king who stubbed his toe. I guess this was a long time ago when there was kings and uh, a lot of leather. Because his solution was to have his, to, was to, to cover his kingdom in leather. <clears throat> so he wouldn't stub his toe anymore, and his wise man and the you know, advisor said, why don't you make shoes? You know. So if, we're exp- if, if, if the only way to resolve our complaints is to transform the world, we're looking outward again. We're looking for peace, for the freedom that the Buddha is pointing to and offering. We're, we're, we need to, to figure out how to resolve dukkha. We can learn to, to recognize, if we can start recognizing, working with complaints, I found just incredibly helpful, is it's there, and how do you, how do you resolve that? We can recognize tanha as it arrives. We can find a way of awakening that occurs entirely within the context of our empirical experience. We don't have to posit supernatural states or otherworldly realms. And I, and I don't object to any of that. One of my best friends is a, a serious um, Presbyterian. And she believes that her spiritual life is in the practice of neighborhood. And she spends her time at homeless shelters and cold weather feeding. I mean, she's she leads a life of service because that's what she believes. And I look at, at the, you know, it doesn't matter which, what you believe. If you're sensitive to your, your own heart, you know, you display the Dharma with your life. It's a koan that you answer with, with your life and the way you, the way you live. So I would just end with, you know, I, I like in the uh, in Catholic Church, they always end with the, with a benediction of some sort. And I think that in this case, the benediction, you know, would be something like, go forth and complain no more. <laughs> Let me just offer an opportunity for questions or comments on, on, uh, on this. I, I think... Um, I can rattle on all night as I was <laughs> talking with Maureen about it. You go to a Dharma talk at, at a monastery in Thailand and you literally, once they get going. So any thoughts or comments? Or all righty. Yeah, please. Uh, 
Um, you said that you were working, been working with complaint. Yeah, and I'm with, just with uh, my own some, complaints. I don't, I don't. don't yeah, know. your own complaints. Yeah. yeah, I was just that's a great idea, and I was just trying to think about how to do that. Or oh or well, you know, so find find um, uh, trivial ones. You know, ones that it's easy to get over. The newspaper boy threw the paper on the roof. It's still there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's a newspaper boy anymore. When I was growing up, it was a newspaper boy, but now the person drives a car and heaves it over the top of the car and it went on the roof. Well, I walked out, and where's the paper? I, I threw it on the roof. Well, you know, that's something you can, that you can sort of laugh about, and it's easier to resolve. When your boss tells you, something delivers the really bad news that this work is unacceptable and you think that the boss is crazy, I've got a crazy boss, complaint, a little bit more difficult to resolve. You know, I got a coffee stain on my shirt, you know, you know, complaint about the way somebody talks or looks, you know, complaints about things political people say, that's really good practice. You know, so start with small things, and and the trick is to rec learn to recognize in you know how the, where the feeling is. I the body is really a good place to look, because the the mind is not separate. The neurology is embedded in the muscles. You know, you go like this, and you don't know how you do this with your hand. You're not. You know, it's just all unconscious stuff. It's just all happening. You know, so check out what's happening, where there's tension, where there's you know, what is what is going on when I'm, what does it feel like when I when I'm mad at that guy for throwing the paper on the roof? And then because there's not so much at stake, it's easy to learn with the little things, and then to work to work on bigger things and to figure out how because the the goal is to abandon. This, to to over to mm, to recognize the sense of lack that we have that's 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 painful and that causes our suffering that drives us to feel that we need something that things need to be different not that the world can't be different Shanru Suzuki used to say I love you just the way you are but I love you too much to leave you the way you are So it's not um, you know, something to learn how to start from here, and where you know. Is that helpful with, with yes. complaints? Complaints. I, Thank you. I, I found it. I found it pretty helpful. Thank you, Tony. Yeah. Uh, you use the word empirical or empirical empirical yeah i'm i'm kind of lost on that um, ah the, it's a it's a word that um good grief it means it can be tested by the senses is that right somebody out there knows this is this is the peninsula for crying out loud somebody knows <laughs> empirical i think means testable by the senses it's scientifically testable empirically, visibly, it doesn't... One of the things that happens when, when you don't have... Um, when, you, when you're dealing with knowledge that's not empirically testable... You know, I mean, I, I, I can't verify black holes. I, I didn't do so. I found that you can't cram um, calculus finals. And so I, I, I didn't do so well, on, on, you know. But I, I know people who are mathematicians. I, get a, I have a good sense of what they do. And they're all watching each other's work and the astronomers. So I sort of think, you know, if I hadn't tried to cram those finals, I might be able to understand black holes. You know, I haven't been to Alice Springs in Australia. But, you know, it's on maps and I think that uh, you have... I want to talk to you afterwards. <laughs> um, but I believe it's there. It's there, right? Yeah, see? Um, you know, but some things are not empirically testable. Is there a God? Is there a heaven? Where is it? Well, how would you test it? Past lives. 
well, the Dalai Lama picked out his glasses, you know, from that he'd worn before. And I think, well, if you're willing to buy past lives, why not just buy mind reading? You know, I mean, you know, if you can't test it, you can make anything up. And we do. Santa Claus, you know, and until they bust you. Then, you know, then you have to cop to, well, yeah, it was me all along. Um, so empirically testable as opposed to matters of faith, which people, you know, it should be fair. That's not empirically testable. You know, there's a heaven or a hell or multiple lives or, you know, hungry ghosts or, you know. And if, you, if, you, if people want to claim special powers, show me. But mythology is mythology. So empirically testable, that's the standard of the scientism that we, that we base our, me. I, you know, I, I uh, tend to have a heavy dose of that. Um, and I think it's in our culture. And a lot of us find our way to Buddha Dharma because we're, you know, fleeing forms of spirituality that push the metaphysics more than uh, the peacefulness and the freedom. But multiple lives, heaven and hell, not empiric, you can't test it. They try. Philosophers have been trying. But slippery credit of those things you make up. Is that helpful? Yes. Great, thanks. Anybody else? Please. We're getting back to hungry ghosts and hell beings. Uh huh. <laughs> but you know, it kind of brings up the fear, and I always thought the purpose was, um, you know, no one wants to reincarnate back into one, so it would help you to perform better or do better. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that annual review at work, you know, if you get a complaint and the fear of, you know, if you get one or more, you're going to lose your job. So back to mm-hmm. fear again and the complaints. Fear is a, so, fear is a good yeah. tool for, for control. You know, because as beings, we like the pleasant stuff. We don't like the unpleasant stuff. You get the politics of hope and the politics of fear. Vote for me, everything's going to be great. Vote for the other guy. I can, you know, run for your lives. Um, in I, I gather that the notion of the boogeyman came to keep in in um, northern Europe to keep kids from wandering into the forest and getting lost. You know, you go into the forest, the boogeyman will get you. Oh no, I'm not going in the forest because. It was helpful and controlling behavior. The Buddha was not so much uh, talking about consolation. He's talking about courage. His last words, you know, all things are impermanent. Strive on. Or as one of my teachers likes to say, get on with it. You know, things are the way they are. How are you going to live the next minute? Can you talk more about that in right action or the relationship between right action and complaint? Mm-hmm. Um, right action and complaint? Mm-hmm. Well, complaints are an aversion to our, our dissatisfaction with whatever it is you're complaining about. Right action is action that does not lead to suffering for yourself. Doesn't sometimes the complaint... It's not intended, right. The, the, that whatever sensation, like the source, the war, that sensation of this isn't right, you don't have to be attached to, I wish this was different, but doesn't it prompt you to write action of if you want to take action to... Well, your action, can be, your action can, be, can be motivated by anger. How, how can they? They've got to stop. It's really da-da-da-da. That was... Or... It can be motivated by compassion, in which case the response is going to be very different. 
in some cases you can't do anything and so you just hurt. So in terms of right action, it would be action that's not motivated by anger or greed or all of the surrogates for greed, hatred, and delusion, lust, and craving, and all of that stuff, or anger, irritation, rage, aversion, ill will. Is that, is that, okay, thanks. Well, I thank you guys for your attention, and as I said, go forth and complain no more.